Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content, too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is in your brain. This is a podcast situation. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. It's great to be with you as always. I am now just hours away from taking off on an airplane bound for Israel. That is what's happening in my life at present. I've been talking about this a little bit on previous episodes of the show. I'm going over there to do some book research. It's a 15-hour flight. I'm sort of dreading 15 hours on an airplane. I can't really sleep very well on moving vehicles, at least not without pharmaceutical assistance. So, uh, And I also can't sleep on moving vehicles while sitting bolt upright in a chair. So I'm going to bring books. I'm going to bring an iPad. I'm going to watch movies. I'm probably going to take an Ambien at some point, and I'm going to do what people do. And uh, I think I might also try to live tweet some of my experiences while I'm over there. And not to the point where I over-mediate my experiences and miss the actual experiences themselves, but just enough to keep people appraised and possibly a little bit entertained. So if you want to find out what's happening to me in Israel, you can just follow me on Twitter at Brad Listy. That's the handle where it's going to be happening. Otherwise, you can content yourself with just imagining me wandering around in Israel in, uh, say, the old city of Jerusalem. You can imagine me wearing a dazed 
expression on my face in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Is that how you pronounce that? Sepulchre? Sepulchre? I have no idea how to pronounce that. You can imagine me uh, at the Wailing Wall, for example, which should be an interesting experience. Uh, me standing there with a confused expression on my face, wondering what I'm supposed to do. I'm not a religious person. Am I supposed to pray anyway? Uh, am I supposed to touch the wall? Are you allowed to touch the wall? I think you're allowed to touch the wall. I want you to imagine me reaching out and gently caressing the wailing wall. Can you see that? Can you see it happening? Can you see me committing any number of socio-spiritual faux pas in a five-day span of time? I think it's possible. I think I can do it if I really try. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Alex Olean. I'm pleased to have her here on the program. She is the author of several books, the two most recent of which were both published on the same day, June 5th of this year, two books in one day. There is a story collection called Signs and Wonders that is now available from Vintage and a novel called Inside that is available from Knopf. She's been in the news a little bit lately. You might have seen her on the internet. There's been some buzz. There's been a little bit of controversy. We're going to talk about all of that right now. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Alex Olean. I am in my office at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, uh, which has actually a lovely view of the Delaware River and a campus that is currently under insane amounts of construction, but is usually very pleasant to look at. No, wait, Not has, so much right now. Has school started for you? Yes, school started on Monday, so I have... Um, uh, just taught my first two classes um, yesterday and, and today, so I'm already in the swing of the semester. Yeah, well, and like, you know, f fall semester, it, it seems like fall semester carries with it like a, a more freshness and hope than spring semester because everyone sort of had the summer or theoretically they've had a summer. Uh, I just remember yeah. when I, I mean, it's, the beginning of a semester is always exciting, but I do remember like the beginning of fall semester uh, carrying with it like a little bit more energy even. Yeah, I think there's a host of... Um, 
sentimental associations with the fall semester that go back to childhood. And for those of us who were nerds who actually enjoyed school as children, fall brings the promise of crisp air and new school supplies, <laughs> library books and that kind of thing. And I definitely um, succumb to that every year. And I, I, I agree with you. There's definitely, um, it's always a good feeling to come back to school in the fall. It's like, yeah, get your trapper keeper out, do the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cop to something extremely nerdy. Uh, I used to watch, do you remember, you know, the movie real genius? Of course. Yeah. Like a huge favorite of mine when I was a kid. And I remember I used to watch it the day before school started every <laughs> fall. And that would be your inspiration for the year to come. <laughs> well, no, I mean, cause I was kind of like, this is the thing. Like I, I moved when I was in junior high and so I, I didn't really have an identity because I wasn't a great athlete and so much of how boys relate to one another and how, like so much of how the social pecking order is established has to do with sports and like right. how fast you can run and stuff like that. And so I was decent, but I was nothing special. And I think I was struggling for identity and I could, uh, I could do school, you know, I could, I could right. get good grades or whatever. And, and I think that movie and the Val Kilmer uh, character in particular, Chris Knight, uh, I even remember the character name, but he was cool. He made being smart seem cool. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So it, was like, it was just a way of trying to give myself some hope. You no, know? It's very important for those of us who only had smartness to find our heroes where we can. <laughs> right, 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 right. So um, let's get to, uh, you know, sort of like the elephant in the room, just right out of the gates. I want to talk to you about this New York Times review, though I know uh, in emails that we uh, traded before this interview that you said you really haven't been paying much attention to it. And I guess the question to ask in that case is, you know, how have you, how has it gone for you? Like, obviously you've been uh, successful and disciplined when it comes to like, you know, not paying attention to all the static, but have you been hearing from friends? Like, what has your experience been of that whole thing that sort of right. bloomed on yeah. the internet? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, um, I was talking to my agent about it the other day and she was saying, you are the last one of my clients that I ever imagined would be at the heart of a controversy like this, you know, just because I, I'm not someone who's personally given to controversy and I was extremely, you know, surprised to find myself in any way uh, affiliated with it, but he almost immediately made a decision um, not to click on any links or read anything that um, people were saying. Um, my agent was keeping me apprised in a very general sense that there was a conversation going on, but it just didn't feel particularly um, productive for me as a writer to um, pay too much attention to it. Um, that said, I have been getting uh, a lot of emails from people, some from fellow writers and some from um, from readers, you know, who have read my books and, and wanted to tell me that they enjoyed them. And uh, that meant a lot to me, actually. It was it was really great. So, I, you know, in a strange way, it's actually been an extremely positive experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, because I mean, that's the way that I experienced it, because I, you know, I, I don't track this sort of thing or go out looking for it, but it just appears on my Twitter feed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, it, and it was very detectable. It was like, as soon as that came out, almost everyone was commenting on it. And I'm wondering, you know, and this is the thing too, is that some writers have the ability to sort of ignore reviews. Now, when you say that you didn't click on any links or read anything, was it just for this specific review or is that your policy with reviews of your own work in general? Like, do you try to stay away from that or... 
Right. Continue. I've actually always read reviews of my uh, of my work in the past, um, even if they were, you know, mixed to negative. And my attitude has always been that it's an opportunity for me to learn and become a better writer. And frankly, given like the tininess of literary audience, I've always felt grateful that anyone was paying any attention to me in my books at all. So it seemed ungrateful not to not to um to read them um, and to take seriously what they had to say. This is the first time that I haven't actually read the review or the or the fallout from it. And when the review was first published, my editor um, sent it to me in an email uh, with a few choice words attached to it. And he said, you know, I really think that you should just skip this. And I had this epiphany. It felt incredibly liberating. I'm like, oh, right, I'm not actually required to read it. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, right, there's no rule that says, uh, you know, that every single time you have to read it. So um, so I just didn't. But, you know, in general, I'm I'm grateful for reviews. I think there are a lot of, you know, wonderful reviewers in, in the country and the culture. And, um, you know, the vast majority of the time I find them, you know, helpful and interesting. Okay, so and you're not tempted to read it because, like, I, and I, let me, forgive me, but I just I'm trying to imagine. It's impossible not to imagine similar scenario. Like, do you find yourself imagining what's in it? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you're not if you're not if you're not reading it, you must be like, what did this guy say? You know what I'm saying? Like, is there that um, mental process? Well, you know, if I think if it were a mixed review, there would be a part of me that would be thinking, oh, maybe it's not as bad as I'm thinking and I should read it to find out. But in this case, from the general sense of the emails that I've been receiving, I'm pretty sure there's no way it could be, you know, any worse <laughs> than what I might imagine. So, so no, I, I'm not really tempted. That said, you know, that's how I'm feeling right now. I mean, this all just happened. You know, I may feel differently um, in a few months or, or in a year and maybe I'll um, turn to it and learn from it and, you know, have it become a part of um, the way that I think about my own work. I don't rule out the possibility of that happening in the future, but I'm I'm not tempted to do it right now. Yeah, see, I'm the kind of person who I, I believe I have a tendency to believe anything critical that is said about me or what I write. Uh, I can't help it. Like, and and yeah. not and, and not like I mean, I get not in like a total self-hating way, but like it's just my tendency to be to see logic. I mean, unless it's totally logical, I guess, but it always seems logical to me. It's like, Oh yeah, they, they might be right. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I'm like that too. And I, I will also say that I'm more than capable of generated am, generating ample negative self-criticism, you know, by myself right. <laughs> inside my own head, you know, I'm really, really good at it, you know? So, um, you know, in a way to, um, to hear even more of it from the outside, you know, it's not always, uh, what you, what you need, but I have had that reaction in the past. You read a negative review and it seems, you know, incredibly true and exact. And then you read a positive review and you think, Oh, maybe that person just doesn't know what they're talking about. Or I feel fooled that person, you know, and I think that's a standard, um, psychological, um, form of self-doubt that plagues many of us who write. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I would like, I guess I would like to be a little bit healthier about it. I think like, or maybe this is the thing. I think that the, the healthy approach is to say that neither is true and that the answer right. is always somewhere in the middle, but it's hard to sort yeah. of live that, I think. Right. Right. And, you know, every review is also, it's, it's one person's reaction and, um, often a very intelligent and well-considered reaction, but still an individual one. And that's part of what makes writing and literature so, so interesting and such an interesting, um, and valuable thing to do with your life is that personal aesthetics vary dramatically um, and books are not sort of wide common denominators like, I don't know, Hollywood formula films that attempt to please everybody. Books are very particular aesthetically and thematically. And so, of course, they tend to elicit 
an extremely varied response, you know, across people. And I think that's important to bear in mind with reviews and readers in general. Well, yeah. And I think too, like I read somewhere once and I don't know who, who it was, but it was, it was an attempt to explain why negative literary reviews can often be so heated and can feel, uh, so over the top and personal even. And, uh, but you know, the, what was posited was that because a book requires so much of you, in, you know, it's not an, it's not a passive experience where you just sit there for an hour and a half and watch the movie. You actually really have to engage with the text and it requires more mental heavy lifting. And, right. and it's like an invasion of your consciousness, you know, at a, yeah. at a deeper level than most, uh, you know, televisual or, uh, cinematic stuff is, you know, though, mm-hmm. there, though there are exceptions I would, I would say, you know, but with books, it really does, um, require that of you. And so when you, when something like, you know, invades your consciousness or whatever, uh, and it's not pleasant somehow that sometimes incites maybe the more hostile reaction. Like that made some sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me too. Um, so have you ever done any criticism yourself? Because this is the thing too, is that, uh, you know, it's a fellow writer. It's often fellow writers who are doing book criticism on the side for money, or it's, you know, it's also part of their career somehow. Like, are you somebody who, uh, has any interesting criticism, uh, like on your own side of the I record? haven't done a lot of, um, uh, the sort of, um, daily, uh, book reviewing type thing for, for weeklies or newspapers. I have written some criticism. The majority of what I've done has actually been criticism of, um, visual art. I have written a number of kind of essays about contemporary artists whose work, um, has interested me. And, I've actually found that to be extremely helpful to me as a fiction writer and I've had a certain amount of success at it, I think because well, a lot of art writing tends to be very particular to that world and I am not an insider in that world. So I have tended to um, just try to write sort of clearly and as intelligently as I can about um, how I experience these these works of art and, and it's been reasonably well received and I think in some ways it's been easier for me to write about art than it would be to write about writing because I don't um, I'm not familiar with a lot of the politics of the world or I don't know people personally so I don't have any concerns about that and I um, and I can just try to you know take the work on its own terms see what I um, think that it's doing and then write about the effects of that. Yeah, that's a weird world, you know. Like that seems very like, like hermetically sealed or something. Like, where, how does that operate? You know yeah, yeah, it's very complicated, and it is, as you say, um, as sealed as the literary world, or, or maybe even more so. And there's also a lot of of money in it, like big money, and these huge international art fairs. That it's really a it's a strange scene because it involves collectors, which is something we don't deal with as as writers. Um, so um, I think it's it must be really really intense to try to be an emerging artist nowadays. I can't really imagine how um, you would set about doing it. But that said, I think there's a lot of really interesting visual art being produced right now and, and work that crosses the boundaries between art and cinema or art and writing. And I'm interested in environmental art. That's something I um, have thought about a lot. So, you know, there is a lot of really interesting work being made. Yeah. And it's like, it's just like, how fabulous would it be? Or at least in my imagination, it's fabulous to be one of these artists who they just like knock off a painting in an afternoon and the thing sells for like a million and a half dollars at auction or whatever. Like, <laughs> once you get to a certain level, do you know what I'm saying? Like a rock star artist like Damien Hurst or Jeff Koons right. or yeah, these kinds yeah. of people. Like what What an absurd existence. Like they, they literally could just like paint a toilet and it would be like, you know, a million, millions of dollars in their pocket. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of speculation involved in that. And like the Dutch tulips 
tulip craze or something. But, um, you know, that's a tiny, tiny percentage of artists, just as it's a tiny percentage of writers who make a lot of money. And, you know, most people are in it for, for other motivations and other reasons. Right. Okay. And so what did you, and you, you mentioned that you were interested in environmental art. Yeah, that's something I thought about a lot. Um, my first novel is actually a, kind of an environmental comedy set in uh, New Mexico. It was about a kind of ragtag group of environmental activists who are well-intentioned but not particularly competent <laughs> in terms of uh, their activism. And uh, so around the time that I was writing that that book, I started to get really interested in looking at um, environmental art and um, thinking about how environmental art is working today. Like there, in the 60s and 70s, a lot of environmental art was sort of large scale like earthworks. Um, but now I think it's moved and developed forward in, in a lot of really interesting ways. There are still people like James Terrell who's out like, you know, sculpting Rod and Crater out in Arizona, um, which is this huge, large scale um, light apparatus that he's making out of, out of earth. Um, but there are also people who are doing uh, installation art and um, things that are more technologically kind of um, affiliated. And it's just really interesting to me how, um, you know, as with writing, people are trying to tell stories about the incredible changes that are happening to our planet. And how do you do that in a way that makes people feel it on a visceral level? I mean, I think we all know that climate change is happening. We all know that... What? I know, not to shock you or anything. But the question is, like, you can know that intellectually or even scientifically, but how to really experience it emotionally and aesthetically is a different um, and harder question. So that's that's something that these artists are addressing. Okay, so, and then it sounds like you do uh, research, or at least for the, the first book you did some actual uh, book research, and then does field research play any role in your process? Uh, be, you know, and I, I say that... Um, because I, I feel uh, a kinship to that, or at least a desire to incorporate that into my own life and work. I, I like the idea because writing is such a solitary pursuit that often involves, <clears throat> you know, sitting completely still in an office and staring at a computer screen. Uh, I like the idea of, of having some part of the process involved getting out into the world. Like, is that, right. is that part of it for you? Yeah, I, I would have to say I don't do as much research as maybe some other writers do, particularly, you know, like people who write historical novels or, you know, really kind of fact or research-based novels probably do more of that kind of thing than than I do. But I have done some of that um, stuff, and, and I agree with you. It is it is really fun. Um, in my first book for these environmental activists, I had a scene where um, because they were against uh, water waste in the desert southwest, um, they decided to go all around these wealthy subdivisions and drain people's swimming pools in the middle of the night and that was their idea of like helpful environmental change and so I had to figure out how they would do it and how long it would take and what kind of equipment they would need so I wound up like calling up like the local pool guys <laughs> and asking all these questions of a guy who ran a pool company and finally he he said excuse me, but do you actually have a pool? <laughs> I had to explain that no, I didn't. I was just asking these questions because I was writing a book about it. Um, but he was very con- kind and still willing to answer my, my strange questions about it. That's cool. Yeah. And then yeah. As far, like, what about traveling? You ever do any kind of traveling or anything to see things that, in, you know, or places that you're trying to set your books in? 
Right. I tend to do it the other way around, which is that I travel to the place and then later I wind up putting it in uh, in the books because those are places that I know and have cared about. So my most recent um, novel um, has a, a number of locations in it, um, five or six, and they're almost all places that have been important to me in my life or that I have been on uh, to on on trips, and so it, it becomes almost like a, a map of of my life in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, travel experience. And I'm, I'm thinking, is it Rwanda? I mean, you've been to you've been there. Right, Rwanda is the only one that I haven't been to, and that that was completely research based. The part of my book that's set in Rwanda during um, the genocide. Oh, okay. um, so that was that I was, was completely. Say that, that's a heavy trip. <laughs> you know, it would have been an extremely heavy trip. Um, um, but uh, I, I wrote that part of the book based entirely on documentary footage, books, um, interviews, um, you know, radio, anything that I could find um, to try to make it credible. But the other sections that are set in New York, Montreal, Iqaluit, which is a small city in northern Canada, and Los Angeles, Edinburgh, the places that I you know, have either lived or, or been to in my travels. Okay, okay. Um, so let's talk about, I mean, you seem to have been like incredibly productive uh, in your career so far. And like when I'm listening to you and, and, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you, you talk, you're incredibly lucid. You're speaking in, uh, not only like complete sentences, but almost complete paragraphs. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a person who is extremely disciplined and has her shit together and is writing like every day. And that, I mean, that obviously if you're getting this many books done, you just publish two books on the same day, uh, a story collection and a novel. So, uh, is, is that how you, operate like are you somebody who is um very disciplined and productive um i don't know if i'm so much disciplined as i am stubborn and routine oriented uh which is to say that i i don't always write every day especially during the school year because it really takes up a lot of my focus and energy but during the summers and breaks and if i have a lighter teaching semester then i certainly do try to um, write as often as I can. But my whole philosophy of writing has always been uh, to be the tortoise and not the hare, which is like slow and steady wins the race. You know, I um, am not someone who has ever, even in college, written productively in big spurts and stayed up really late at night or worked well, you know, with a last minute deadline that just fills me with anxiety. You know, what I like to do is get up early in the morning and drink probably a little bit too much coffee and sit there and and visit with the work for a couple of hours. And sometimes I produce words and sometimes I don't, but it's important to kind of stay acquainted with the things that you're working on. Um, So that's all I can say in terms of, you know, how I've managed to, to write the things that I have. Yeah, I mean, but is it an every day? I mean, I, I mean, you said not every day during the school year, but I mean, is it? Are you kind of the kind of person that, like, in the summer when you have a stretch of open time, you'll do it seven days a week? Yeah, in the summer, I definitely will. And I was also um, fortunate. I had a few years ago, I had a year off from teaching. Um, my school granted me uh, a leave, and that was the year that um, I wrote most of the first draft of the novel that just came out. So it was definitely, I was very lucky to not be working full time on teaching, and that made an enormous difference. I'm sure that if I hadn't had that year, I, I wouldn't have um, had the two books. You know, that just came out. So some. Some of it is, you know, really good luck and, and support from the school where I teach, and I, you know, I can't dance like that at all. Um, I mean, you have to have support. I mean, like whether it's support, like I don't think like in all the literary biographies that I've ever read, there have been few instances where a writer wrote 
totally against hardship, against the odds, and found a way. Like there's always someone uh, or something yeah. along the way that that gives them a boost. It, it's it's almost like a, you know, a necessity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 often it's your family, you know, who are understanding of your strange hours or the fact that your mind is sometimes somewhere else as you're as you're working on your writing. And then sometimes it's you know a a job which gives you the the flexibility to to do that. But you know, I agree, and it's what you know Virginia Woolf was famously talking about with women writers that they um, they need a certain amount of money each year and and a room of their own and definitely feel very lucky to have had, you know, the modern day equivalents of that. Well, yeah. And, you know, and just to get it done, I feel sometimes, you know, even with something as, as, uh, even with an amount of time and it sounds fairly modest, you know, just like a couple hours in the morning, uh, even if that happens seven days a week, uh, where you get up first thing and work on it, like that sounds like manageable, but yeah. you know, I, I do something, I think somewhat similar. Uh, and even that, I think it, it, you know, it starts to affect other aspects of my life. I can't go out as late because I'm always thinking about that time. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, mm-hmm. It starts to just kind of become the center of my world. Is that, is that the way that it is for you where, um, maybe, you know, that stubbornness, you know, you, you sort of have to block it out and you sort of have to, or at least I have to prepare myself, uh, physically in order to make sure that when I do wake up, I'm fresh. That means I can't drink too much that, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. Like I have to be careful about making sure that I defend that time as if it were like a fortress or something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mavis Gallant, who's a a writer that I really admire, she, um, said that the, the trait that an artist needs is absolute selfishness, which sounds terrible, but, um, I think that there is a truth to it that we can, we can take in a way that, doesn't make us bad people, which is to say that you have to put it first in some ways. You know, you have to put it before, you know, going out drinking right before. You have to put it before, um, you know, answering emails or whatever. You have to make it a priority, you know, pay yourself first in the time that you spend on it. Otherwise, there are infinite number of things that you could be spending your time on and infinite obligations that we have to other people, our family, our coworkers, our friends. And so there's really no one who's going to hold you accountable for spending that time but yourself. Yeah. And, and yeah, and like, that's the other thing about doing it first too, is that like all these other things, uh, are energy drains, you know, and not right. necessarily in a, in a bad way, they just require human energy. So right. if you don't get, you know, I, I don't understand how people go through like an entire work day and then sit down to write fiction late at night. Like that's something that I would find really difficult, you know? I don't, I don't either. Yeah. I'm not a night owl and I'm not really an early morning person either. I have a tiny window of maximum consciousness between about 11 and 1130. (laughs) I try to really just hit that, you know, spot every day for writing, you know, insofar as I possibly can. Yeah, no. And it's like, I was, I've read a couple of things like recently and these stories always change. So this is one of the things like of modern media existence that sort of frustrates me, but uh, have you ever noticed there's always like these health stories, like health related stories where uh, scientists are discovering something that contradicts something that they discovered right, the year always. before? Always. Yeah. And yeah. so it was like, uh, you know, a couple of related articles, one of which was that uh, people who are messy uh, actually have a higher IQ than people who are neat necks and who are like organized and people who, um, I guess, what was it? People who stay up l- or sleep in late and who stay up late tend to have higher IQs as well. And I'm not like super ultra neat, but I'm, I'm neater than not neat. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, I don't, my, my office is not a disaster. Let's put it that right. way. Uh, and I also do not tend to stay up super late, you know? So I think on right. both fronts, I've just been, uh, you know, at least for the time being confirmed as having a lower IQ. <laughs> 
<laughs> try not to take that to heart. Yeah. I wouldn't listen to those. There'll be another study next next week that says that um, reasonable neatness is a maximum uh, trait of intelligence. Yeah, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting my redemption <laughs> on msnbc.com or whatever. Right. Um, so where are you from? Let's get into like, uh, I'd love to know more about like your, your bio and like, you know, how you, how you grew up and where you grew up and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Montreal. Uh, so I'm Canadian and, uh, my father, uh, was an English professor. So I grew up in a house full of books and, um, a house where, you know, reading and literature were, were really highly valued and, and often discussed. So it was a very privileged way for a person who likes words to, um, to grow up. You know, I didn't, you know, some people grow up in uh, places that don't encourage them as artists and they have to really fight their way towards an artistic identity. And I was very lucky. I had two parents who have been, you know, nothing but supportive and, and never said, oh, you know, trying to be a writer is impractical. You know, they were just both really um, always um, behind it as, as an idea. Um, so I was a kind of, you know, writer nerd as a as a little kid, you know, with my little homemade stories and in notebooks and, you know, obsessions with little women and Anne of Green Gables, you know, the kind of girl writer characters that you um that you gravitate to when, when you're young and female and interested in writing. Um so that's my background. Well wait now and so your dad was a professor of English. I read somewhere that he was like a an expert on Ingmar Bergman. Am I wrong? Was that uh, yes, that is correct. He is um, from Sweden, and he, um, for most of his career, taught actually um, American literature and film. Um, so he was also an expert on um, Fitzgerald and Hemingway, and those were writers that I um, read and, and loved as a teenager, um, especially. He also uh, wrote a book on James Agee and Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. So we watched a lot of films uh, growing up of, of all different kinds. I got great exposure to that. Um, but but then just this past year, he did publish a book on uh, Bergman's film Persona, and it is an excellent book. I recommend it highly to all who are interested in learning more about uh, this classic film by Bergman. Yeah, see, I read that and I was imagining you as like a six-year-old child just like sitting there watching Bergman films with your, with your dad <laughs> or something. Was that, was that, is there any I'm not going to say that never happened, but I will say it was, it was more often the case that we were watching uh, screwball comedies from like the 30s and 40s, and I grew up, um, my dad would always watch in Montreal at 11 p.m. on the Vermont PBS station. They would always show like old black and white movies, a lot of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. And I would um, sneak out of my bedroom and go downstairs and watch those with him. For, so um, those are what I remember more than like watching Cries and Whispers as a, as a child or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it sounds kind of idyllic. And um, I'm also wondering, I mean, I guess if your parent, is, is your mother an academic too? Did you say that? No, no, she's not. She's not. Okay. So, I mean, but I'm, I'm just wondering, like, having a dad who uh, is an English professor and growing up in an academic household and having exposure to all these things and having kind of, uh, you know, a nurturing, like an artistically nurturing environment. Is that a way of putting it? Uh-huh. Sure. Uh, you know, were you, were the, were the conversations at your dinner table, do you think, looking back, more... Uh, I don't know, uh, artistic and intelligent than the average dinner table conversation? And were you privy to adult conversations at a younger age than maybe other children may have been? Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. I mean, there were definitely some things that were talked a lot about at my house that probably were unusual. I mean, you know, 
Foucault might come up, you know, at dinner. I, I wouldn't say that we were always, you know, sitting around discussing, you know, the nature of postmodernism or anything like that. Um, we were still an ordinary family in the suburbs, but I definitely had, um, you know, conversance with some uh, some of these, you know, ideas and, and definitely a lot of writers that was probably not entirely typical, you know, for other kids my age. Um, and there was stuff that we didn't talk about that's probably more normal uh, in other people's families. Like we certainly never talked about anything to do with like business, <laughs> you know, for example, because that just wasn't really on my, my parents' minds in particular. So I, I do think these things are, are formative, you know, for you as, as a child. And I, I still tend to um, think of the world in terms of stories and art and film. And that's really um, an area that I feel really comfortable in and thinking about. And I've had to sort of reach further to get more comfortable with like reading the business section of the newspaper, for example. Yeah, that's always it's kind of a stretch for me, you know. Yeah, <laughs> glad to hear I'm not the only one. No, and you know, I just I go through I go through phases with it, and I'll try to like engage with that stuff. But what it, I wind up getting uh, really panicky about money whenever I start to read that stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? Like money management, yeah. and you need to be saving and all that kind of stuff. It just gets me all freaked out. Yeah, it's scary, and it's scary because it's foreign to so many of us, and it's extremely, extremely complex. But it's it's one of the things that I've tried to educate myself about more um, as I've. As I've gotten older and also, you know, after the global economic crisis, um, I just realized, boy, it's really, it's really irresponsible not to have at least a basic sense of how this all happened and, you know, what the ripple effects are. So, some, like Michael Lewis is someone who writes, you know, unbelievably well and, and was clearly say, about finance. So, thank God for him is all I can say. Yeah, well, no. And, and what was the book? Uh well, I forget what the name of the book was. The Big Short was the really um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, the, book. Like, yeah. where, he's, where he's talking about the people who actually did. Figure. People who knew that it was happening and nobody right. would listen to them. They were there. Yeah, and nobody paid attention. Yeah, there was like an excerpt of that in some magazine that I read. And it was like this uh, autistic doctor, yeah. uh, you know, from Palo Alto or something who was sitting at home reading these prospectuses and crunching these numbers and was like, this mm-hmm. is, this is going to bust. And he made an obscene amount of money because he he bet on it properly or whatever, but, right. uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, that whole world. I think what you said earlier about, you know, having a level of responsibility, I think that makes sense. It's just, you know, I was watching and I try, especially, in, you know, in, in the aftermath of all that. And I was watching a documentary on, uh, I think it was like frontline did like mm-hmm. a, a two part documentary on the, the banking, you know, world and how it all came to, uh, you know, to happen. And one of the people that was being interviewed was an employee, you know, an employer, a former employee of one of these big banks that was involved in, um, you know, all this like uh, credit default swap derivative business. Mm-hmm. And she like looked into the camera and she said, I don't think anybody who's even working inside understands how it works. Like the, which is to say that the complexity of it all, right. uh, to some, to some degree, just to, it's just like, un, you know, it's so tangled that no one really knows how it works, which is right. <laughs> no, that's true. And everyone, I mean, from from what I understand, and I couldn't be further from an expert on it, but from what I understand, people involved are just trying to, they're focused on their tiny part of this larger financial universe. And there's not really been any oversight or regulation of the larger thing, which is, you know, obviously been a huge part of the problem. Um, People are just trying to make it day to day. They're trying to do their particular job and do well and please their supervisor and make their salary and their bonus. And there's no one who whose job it is necessarily to stand back and say, um, okay, let's make sure that the entire machine is 
is running as well as it as it can or as ethically as it can. I don't know if you saw the movie Margin Call, but that to me was an incredibly interesting look at the psychology of that, the people that, who work in the finance industry. Yeah, that was like my. I think that was criminally underseen. It was like probably my favorite movie of last year, and I, I say that having to also admit that I saw about like five movies last year <laughs> because I have a, a young kid and I fall asleep. Yeah. I fall asleep yeah. whenever I see a movie, but mm-hmm. uh, I watched that riveted. And yeah, I had read, yeah. I think I read the David Denby review in the New Yorker or something. And like, uh, you know, I don't want to sound too precious about it, but whenever the New Yorker like raves about a movie, I tend to see it just because the, their critics seem particularly bitchy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's hard, it's hard yeah. for, it's hard for them to get excited, but they were excited right. about that movie. And I watched it, I think it was on Netflix and I thought it was just superb and, yeah. um, you know, showed kind of the. I don't know. Uh, it, it showed all, a, a lot of different sides of it, but I, I thought that the just kind of like the human side for the people uh, inside the industry was like really well portrayed, like the Kevin Spacey yeah. character. Oh yeah, he was great, and the Zachary Quinto character—they're um, all great, and they're they're presented in a way that is—it's um, neither a condemnation nor um, nor particularly heroic. They're just presented as real people who you know react as they logically and emotionally would, you know, in the midst of a financial crisis. And you know, I think almost more than anything else that I that I read um, or saw about the crisis, it helped me to understand what it must be like to um, be in the thicket of something like that. Yeah, yeah. I just everyone should see that movie. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, just to kind of wind it back to your bio, you know, your biography and, and mm-hmm. um, how you became a writer. It sounds to me like you were born to this, if not like groomed for it. I mean, not that sounds a little bit too hardcore, probably. But um, you know, you were born to uh, an English professor, so you had that advantage in, in terms of your education. And then uh, it sounds like you were pretty young when you started to move toward writing. I mean, is that correct? It, it is, although I, I would say that it wasn't, wasn't always a completely clear um, trajectory. Um, I did always love um, literature, and I, I found my home in books. Um, it was um, always where I felt that I belonged, but the idea of being a writer was in many ways intimidating to me, and I actually set it um, aside for a number of years. You know, I wrote your typical angsty teenage poetry when I was in high school, but then I went off to college, and there were a lot of other extremely talented writers there, and I, um, I just sort of thought, well, I'm not sure that that's something that I can do. I'm not sure that I have, um, you know, the courage or the necessity of doing it. So I didn't write at all in college, and I had the plan that I was going to um, be a literary scholar. I was going to go get my Ph.D. and um, uh, become a professor like my dad. Um, So I graduated from college, and I decided, okay, you know what, I'm going to put that on hold um, for a couple of years, and I'm going to move to New York and work in, in publishing. So I did that. I worked at Random House for a couple of years, and I learned a lot about publishing. And then I was like, okay, well, now it's really, really time to, you know, get around to um, going to graduate school um, to get my PhD. And I and I kept. I, this was back in the day uh, where you actually filled out paper applications. So I ordered all of the applications, and I would sit there and fill them out. And I I kept trying to write the statement of intent for the PhD programs, and Ugh. I just. I could not do it. I couldn't write a simple paragraph about why I wanted to get my doctorate in literate, which was in literature, which was absurd for someone who, you know, cared so deeply about it. And, you know, this dragged on for months of me trying to write this dumb, like, you know, 500 word statement. So finally, I realized that um, 
that this was probably a sign that I didn't actually want to get my PhD and I wanted to do something else. So that, a few years after college, is when I actually started writing in earnest. And I just, you know, completely wrote in secret for um, quite a few years and didn't tell anyone that that was what I was doing and sat in cafes and scribbled in a notebook um, like every cliche of a, of, a, of a young writer that you might imagine. Um, were, you and smoke, were you smoking years. cloves or anything? <laughs> no, I never smoked cloves, but I drank way too much coffee for sure. And um, yeah, <laughs> okay. wore my artsy clothes and all of that. But anyway, so after that, that's, that's when I, I really started to, to think more seriously about um, trying to do this thing. So you were in your mid-20s? Is that like about yeah. the, the age time? Okay. And so yeah, um, exactly. college, where did you go to college? I went to Harvard. Oh, you did? I did, yes. Oh. And I studied English there. And I had a really, really good experience. Um, I was thrilled to be there. You know, I had um, applied to, you know, growing up in Canada, not a lot of people in my high school applied to American colleges. I think I was the only one. And it was really at my mother's suggestion. My mother is American and, and she liked the whole kind of liberal arts education system that is um, slightly more kind of prevalent in uh, the U.S. than in Canada, where you often apply directly into a particular program of study. So she really encouraged me, and I thought, well, this will never happen, but I'll just send off a few applications and see what happens. And then I was accepted, and I was like, well, I guess I better go, because that seems awesome. And, and, you know, it really was. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, did you have to, if you're in Canada, you taken anything that's similar to the SATs? Do you have to do that? Yes, I did take the SAT. And again, it was not something that, you know, we all did in, in our high school. I think I had to go to some special, uh, you know, random high school uh, where the, the few cluster of us who were interested in doing it, we all met one Saturday and took it all together. So in in some ways, I think it was a it was really a great way to approach it because it was so low pressure. You know, when I hear about students who are applying to colleges now or the the ones that I teach, you know, there's so much anxiety and intensity involved in the in the college admissions process. And um, because I was an outsider to it, I didn't experience that at all. Thank goodness. Yeah, and you must. I mean, you, you must have had good grades and stuff. Like you were a good student if you got into Harvard, correct? Yeah, yeah, I had good grades, but, you know, I wasn't expecting, you know, that I would be a shoe-in or anything. Um, so I was I was surprised and, and pretty pleased, that, you know, to have gotten in. And then what about the environment there? Uh, you know, to, to show up as a freshman uh, coming from Montreal and you're around all these, ch- you know, all these other, like, you know, super brains or whatever, uh, <laughs> is it, it was it ultra competitive? Did you feel that? Was there, uh, like, you know, a very distinct social hierarchy that you could – detect. I mean, it's like, a, you know, one of the top four or five elite colleges in the world, I would say, right? I mean, so right. did you, yeah. could you could you sense that or was it more of just like a normal kid going to school student experience? Right. I think it was to my advantage that I was extremely naive about things like social class and hierarchy and advantages. I had never met anyone before who went, you know, to boarding school. I was not aware that... A lot of my, you know, fellow students had extremely famous parents until someone would tell me much later. You know, I just had grown up in like this, you know, very middle class suburb of Montreal um, and I... I was clueless and so I just kind of marched in and... um, I wouldn't say I took it for granted in a way, but I, I would say that I was not as 
scared as I would have been had I had a more clear idea of just how privileged the background was. No, I was, um, you know, I was the exact same way. I never knew. Yeah. I, I knew nothing until I went to college yeah. and started meeting these kids who went to like, you know, Choate or whatever and had, mm-hmm. had like a place. And I went to college in Colorado, so they'd have like a, a place in Aspen. And it was like, oh, you know, and then, but then suddenly it dawns on you. Like once this dawns on you and you start to become aware of this stuff, do you feel like because you just figured it out late, it was easier to handle or did it start to, you know, did it ever like rattle you at all or anything like that? It actually rattled me more, uh, once I graduated, because the whole time that I was at Harvard, I felt like I was so lucky to be there. I mean, I loved it. I thought the campus was so beautiful. I loved my classes. I was really happy. And, uh, you know, I was in, you know, the center of nerd universe, which had always made me seem a little bit different and strange in high school. And finally, I was in a place where, you know, to be intellectual or to care about um, books was considered completely normal. And I I would say that I thrived in it. Um, It was more of an issue for me once I once I graduated and I had to figure out, you know, what I was going to do with my life. And I um, managed to get a job in publishing by doing uh, like a kind of publishing credential course um, in the summer. And in the years after uh, college, when I was in my 20s, I, you know, I had no money and um, I worked a lot of not bad jobs, but, you know, some marginal jobs, you know, I was really scraping by for most of my 20s. And I saw a lot of my peers just sort of instantly graduate (laughs) into a lot of uh, amazing positions and success. And, you know, those were completely deserved on the basis of their, you know, accomplishments and and intelligence. But it was also true that they had connections. I I was going to (laughs) say, come on, you know, that's very kind. But I mean, a lot of times it's like, if you're born to it, you know, you just magically wind up in, in a well, it's spot. often both. I mean, people were really smart and they um, were really good writers, but they also, you know, had grown up in part of a media world or a government world or, you know, international diplomacy or business. <laughs> and, you know, they just had um, had a lot of connections that, I, again, I would remain very naive about. So it really wasn't until I was in my 20s that I realized, oh, right, Harvard is actually not a complete leveling ground. It's a wonderful experience and it changed my life and made my life better in so many ways, but I, there were differences that were there when we got there and remain there, you know, once we graduated and it took me an absurd amount of time <laughs> to figure that out. Maybe, but maybe to the better, you know, maybe the, a, a, in a way the kind of naivete towards that is probably, uh, you know, uh, has well, a, it's probably not really productive to dwell on it in all yeah, honesty. Exactly, I mean, exactly. you know, you're not going to change where you came from and all you can do, you know, you have to make your own path and you know, that's, that's all you can do. Right. Exactly. So, uh, earlier, you mentioned that when you went out and you got this uh, first job at, at Random House, you learned quite a lot about publishing, and mm-hmm. it was like a two-year experience, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, what did you learn? Well, um, at the time that I graduated from college, Random House had this amazing program, which unfortunately I'm not sure still exists, but it was a paid it was a, it was a paid internship program where um, they would hire you, and for six months you circulated around all of the departments um, in publishing. So I worked in the editorial department for a few weeks, but I also worked in foreign and and subsidiary rights. I went down into like the cellar of the building and the lower floors where the people worked on the contracts and I worked on those. I also went out to the field with the sales reps and went around with some sales reps to, um, 
to bookstores. I still remember, you know, getting to go to the tattered cover in Denver with a sales rep and to see how they would actually sell books to sales reps. I also went to the warehouse in Baltimore where books get remaindered and torn apart in this huge, huge um, machine, oh, uh, which is one of the saddest things I've ever <laughs> seen in my entire life. So it really was like a top to bottom education in the nature of, of book publishing and um and then after that, I, I um, worked for um, the editorial department for a little while, and I also learned a lot very specifically about the editorial process of, of publishing um, in terms of how things get submitted, you know, how agents work, how books get shepherded, you know, from the initial acceptance into, you know, final book form. And that was honestly, you know, as helpful to me as a writer, if not more so than, you know, the MFA program that I ultimately went to because it really taught me a lot about um, how everything works and um, made me understand also that the people who work in publishing are, I mean, nobody is in that for the money. I mean, they are all in it, like, for the love of books. And I've never, as a result, seen, you know, publishers or editors or agents as anything but allies, you know, to writers. And um, I think that's been really helpful. Yeah. So what is it? So, okay. So having gone through all that, uh, which sounds like a hell of an education, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't think of something more useful to somebody who has writer, you know, writerly aspirations to go through in their early twenties. That, that, that yeah. sounds like magnificent. So, uh, having gone through that and then having, um, you know, gotten your MFA and then gone through all the hoops that you've jumped through, uh, so far in your career in terms of publishing multiple books and whatnot, uh, what, what does it mean and what does it take to be published? Well, do you know what I'm saying? Because you, you always hear that like, Oh, you know, he got published really well. Uh, you know, yeah. obviously he got a deal at a major house and it, the, the editor is good, you know, but what is it like, can you, uh, define that? It's, um, I think it's actually slippy, slipperier, if that is a word to define now than it has ever been before, because people in publishing are really grappling with the new media landscape. And, um, I think it's harder to say what it means to be published well now than it, um, probably was, you know, 20 years ago, maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, I wasn't publishing 20 years ago, so I could be wrong about that. But, um, I think some of it is the attention that is paid to your, to your book. Um, you want people who, are going to, you know, be rigorous with you in the editing process. And then you want people to be your champion. I mean, everything about being a writer is finding the person who is going to be your champion, right? So the agent has to be your champion to editors. And then your editor has to be your champion to the sales force. And then the sales force has to be your champion to the broader public. Like at every step in the way, other people have to believe in you. And um, that's what it takes, as so far as I can tell. Yeah. And you know, and like the quality of the champion matters, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think, yeah. I mean, you know, like if you have, and by that, I mean, if you have an editor who has a great track record and that person right. is championing you, then the, then the effect of that championing is, is, you know, multiplied or whatever, magnified. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, I think it's also true though, that, you know, nowadays we have a lot of kind of new, um, smaller publishers who, because they are lesser known, um, their championing is, you know, they're really aggressive and they're doing a lot of really interesting things to try to communicate with, with readership. So I was thinking about, you know, like the Zank books and um, how much they've been able to do in just a few short years. Or um, my friend Richard Nash, who um, runs Red Lemonade, um, sure. which published Zazen, and that just won, you know, this huge pen award. I mean, these are people who are really, you know, they're scrappy, they're small, and they're doing um, a lot with, with very little. So in some ways, 
I think, you know, having a good editor at a big house is terrific, but it's not the only route to being published. Well, especially not nowadays. Hmm. So where did you get your MFA? I got my MFA at the Michener Center, which is at the um, University of Texas at Austin. Um, so that was a lot of fun to live in Austin. The like was... only time spent in Texas, but it was really great. And that's that, was that a three-year program or a two-year program? It's a three-year program, and it's dual genre, so you are required to pick a, a primary and a secondary genre. So um, I um, focused mainly um, in fiction, and then my secondary genre was screenwriting, um, which was really great, actually. I wouldn't say that I you know, have amounted to anything as a screenwriter. I have not. Um, but it really taught me a lot about structure and mechanics and um, the dramatic need for scene, <laughs> which was something that was not a strength of mine as a fiction writer. You know, I was always drawn to fiction out of character or voice or interiority. And those things just, you know, they have a smaller part to play or a different way of being animated, at least in a screenplay. So it really, um, it really did what the program I think intends it to do, which is to be complementary, you know, to your, to your main work. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think there's something, cause I went through a similar MFA program where you had to cross pollinate. And uh-huh. I think that that's happening anyway, you know, in whatever education you take for yourself, just by virtue of the fact that we grew up in the era that we grew up in and we were watching television and going to movies and, you know, that's the dominant mode of storytelling, you know, in, right. our, in our culture. So it's in, it's going to find its way into your brain most likely, unless you're like, you know, Amish or something. <laughs> And, uh, you know, if that's the case, then I think that there's some, uh, credence to the idea that it's good to know how it works. And when you talk about screenwriting, it's like, I mean, I really do believe that the, because it's a defined form and because, you know, kind of like a haiku or something like you can't go beyond 120 pages, generally speaking, um, you know, you're working within this very sort of rigid architecture and it teaches you that there, I think, I think there are some, uh, you know, there's components of storytelling that are. Um, I mean, they, they can be moved around, but they're always there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a it's a it's a really well established and highly functioning mechanism where things happen in a certain way at a certain time. There's a lot of variety within it, but it always it always has to be there. And there's tremendous economy to it from the screenwriter's point of view. I mean, if you look at the number of words that are on the page and yet how much they suggest. Um, which is to say they suggest an entire movie on the basis of a few choice details and words. It's really um, pretty astonishing form that people are able to work in. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you have any teachers in your, uh, in your MFA program uh, or even before then, like, do you have a teacher that you look to and say, that was a teacher who really changed things for me or kind of like, uh, you know, opened things up for me? Um, Well, I had a number of really interesting teachers, um, uh, the first teacher I had um, was actually not in my MFA program. I just took a class um, as a sort of outside student um, with Chris Offit, who uh, was great. And I think he had just started teaching then, and we, we've kept in touch since then. In graduate school, I took a class with Dennis Johnson. It was really interesting to, to be around him because I love his work so much, and it was just fascinating to hear him um, talk about writing. But my favorite teacher was this Scottish writer named James Kelman, who he won the Booker Prize for How Late It Was, How Late, and he's, um, he's extremely political. He's really, really um, active in, um, in a lot of issues in particular the plight of the Kurds, but also class issues in the UK. You know, he's really, really a kind of um, old school, like um, working class um, activist guy. And I 
um, thought his writing was so interesting. It's very experimental. Um, but he also is just, he's like really a revolutionary in the way that he wanted to talk about writing. And he, he wasn't interested in any of the sort of normal workshop rituals that we were used to as American graduate students. And, you know, we would sit there with our manuscripts, like carefully annotated and then give some constructive criticism and hand it back. And he just seemed kind of appalled by that. And he wanted to have the kind of deep conversations about why art matters and why our writing was mad you know, why, why it was going to change the world. You know, that was the kind of thing he wanted to talk about. And I love that, that passion that he had for it. And, um, it really meant a lot to me as, as a student. Yeah. He's like, why are we, you know, why are we trying to go for, for small fish? Let's go for the big fish. (laughs) Yeah. The biggest possible fish, you know, and, and that's as it should be for sure. Uh, okay. So you, you go, uh, we've got your education covered and like <laughs> early work experience. Uh, and so I guess a, a, another natural question to ask, uh, and, and this is also just having talked to you now for uh, a while, I, I have a hard time imagining that you were ever super dejected as you were pursuing this, that you seem, not that you didn't experience adversity, but you don't seem to have stayed dejected for very long. Is that true? Or did you ever hit a wall where you were like, shit, this is not going to happen. And I'm going to just wind up, you know, working some miserable job in some miserable building and then I'm going to die. <laughs> oh yeah. I feel that way all the time. I mean, it was, it was worse in, in my twenties when, you know, I had, I had been given, you know, this incredible gift of an Ivy league education. And then I was like literally working at Barnes and Noble for $5 an hour <laughs> and doing my writing on the side with nothing to show for it. And it was like year four of that. And, you know, I, I didn't have any health insurance and I got so anxious about everything, you know, in my life and my lack of a future as a writer and my lack of health insurance, which was especially alarming to me because I grew up in Canada. Where I was, was going to say, I was going to say, why don't you just go home for God's sakes? <laughs> no, I was too stubborn. It would, you know, feel like going up. So like giving up. So anyway, I got so anxious about all of this that I wound up having to go to the hospital because I was anxious over my lack of health insurance. And then I, I could only afford to go to like the hospital for the indigent. <laughs> and they sat me down with a woman who did like the pay scale based on how much money you make and they figure out how much you can pay. And I told her what I made per month and what I paid for my rent. And she looked at me and said, but how do you live? (laughs) And then she told me that I had to pay $2 for my visit. Oh my goodness. So did you have, you had a panic attack? I had a complete panic attack that went on. um, I had several panic attacks that went on for, um, for quite a few months, but I eventually uh, kind of worked my way out of it. And uh, I, I'm definitely not, I mean, it's partly that I'm not like a hugely depressed person by nature, but I think the bigger issue for me is that I'm someone who really believes in being grateful for privilege. And um, even though I'm often, you know, full of self-doubt and worry about my work, I am always aware of how much I have been given, you know, from my family support to my education to the job that I have now. And I sort of feel like I don't have any right to get too down because look at all this. You know, I'm so lucky. And that's pretty much the way that I feel most of the time. Well, and you're not chem. I mean, and then there's also just a biochemical component. You don't, you're just lucky not to be wired for like, no, that's true. You know, that's very true. And I, I, you know, don't mean to downplay the importance of that. Yeah. I mean, because I'm like, I'm the same, like, I I think I could, I don't know. I mean, I can be depressive. I've had moments and periods in my life where I've been more morose than others, but, um, I, I do not, I do not, I don't think at least have that like super hardcore biochemical thing or neurochemical thing where, you're really depressed. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a, really hard. That's a lucky thing, you know, to not yeah. ha- to, to have to deal with that on top of the rest of it is quite a burden to bear. No, that's absolutely right. Um, so with these panic attacks, because I've actually talked to a few writers on this show. <laughs> <Go figure. laughs> a common theme. Yeah. So was this like one of those things where you thought you were having a heart attack? Was there that, or was it just like shortness of breath, or were, you know? Because I, I think a lot of times panic attacks manifest in fear of uh, heart attack. Right. Yeah. I I think the first few times I thought that I was having a heart attack and then, you know, subsequently I realized that I was having a panic attack. But honestly, knowing that it's just a panic attack doesn't really make it any better, you know, when you're in the thick of it. And for me, a big part of it was then I would I would be unable to eat and then I would, you know, go for um, too long a period of time without eating. And that was not good for my my health either. Um, so, uh, you know, it took a, it took a while to kind of manage it and, and to figure out, you know, everybody has different things that trigger, um, their panic or their anxiety. And so part of managing it is, um, to figure out what those things are and, and to avoid them. Um, I drink a lot less coffee now <laughs> than I used to, <laughs> uh, which is sad because I love coffee. I was going to say, you're, um, you're, you've, you've stopped freebasing caffeine and you know, <laughs> exactly. It used to be almost like a recreational thing for me to see how much coffee I could actually manage to ingest without going completely insane. Um, that's uh, something that I have left behind. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, when did you get an agent? Like when did you, you know, t- take take us to when your career started to uh, manifest in a professional way. You know what I'm saying? Right. Sure. Yeah. Well, it happened in my... Um, in my final year, so the third year of my MFA program, um, I don't know if they still do. I think they do. The, the Atlantic Magazine used to run this um, annual student contest where they would give a prize for um, like the number one story, I think also poem and essay um, by a student in um, in a writing program, undergraduate or graduate. Um, and sometimes they would publish um, your work in the magazine and sometimes they would just publish your name, you know, in uh, uh, a page in the magazine and and give you some money. So the year that I was um, completing my thesis, I, I won the first prize in the fiction contest for students. So my name was in the magazine and they did not publish the story, but um, my name was there and I started to get um, interest from agents um, at that point. Um, what happened to me, and this is another example of, you know, the luck that I am grateful for, um, in the time that I had, you know, worked in publishing in New York in my early 20s, I had made a really good friend who was also an editorial assistant, and we had stayed in touch and stayed really good friends, and in the interim, she had decided uh, not to be an editor and to become an agent. So at the time when I was just starting to need an agent, she was just starting out as one, and she was my contemporary and my and my good good friend. So I never really shopped around for an agent. I just sort of um, had like a pinky swear deal with her <laughs> that <laughs> at some point, if I ever you know managed to produce you know a, a manuscript, um, I hoped that she would be my agent, and she said that she would. So um, that was how it happened for me, and she's still my agent, and she's terrific. And, and who is she? Her. You might her name is Amy Williams, oh, yeah, and she yeah, yeah. now has a she's a partner in her own agency, McCormick and Williams. Sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, my agent actually, I think, used to work with her. Did she used to work at a a Gurnett company? She did. She used to work at the Gurnett company. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, I've been in there. They had a nice little office with that terrace and everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So you you then you you completed your first novel. 
mm-hmm. and you went out with it. And what was that experience like? Um, I actually went out with a collection of stories first and about 50 pages of the novel. I had written a draft of the novel um, as my thesis, but I wrote it really quickly because I wrote it like in nine months, you know, for my thesis. So it was really bad. But as you know, there's a lot of emphasis, you know, especially for a beginning writer or, uh, you know, for all writers um, on having a novel manuscript in addition to or instead of a story collection. So, um, so I went out with both, but one of them was a partial and, um, and I was able to get um, the book deal out of that. And then um, uh, the editor who bought it, who is still my editor said, you know, why don't you go back and, and finish the novel? Um, first and we'll publish that. So I had this contract, you know, for actually quite a few years while I was still finishing the novel. And then that wound up coming out first and then the collection of stories the year after that. And that was with Knopf? And that was with Knopf. That's a great, I mean, that's a nice way to start, right? Yeah, it was, it was terrific. You know, they get a lot of um, reviews, um, I think more so than some other, you know, um, smaller publishers. So I, I felt like I got a reasonable amount of attention. It wasn't like a huge, you know, splash, but it was, it was, um, I feel like they, they really work with integrity and they make beautiful books. Um, you know, they're beautifully edited, but also just as physical objects, you know, I think they are very beautiful and I'm, you know, I love that. Well, yeah, you know, and this is the thing. And I, I think there's a, this is a, a, some naivete of my own, but uh, understanding, and this is something that probably should have been logical and obvious to me, but just understanding that who publishes you uh, matters a lot in terms of uh, booksellers, you know, and how mm-hmm. they receive a book and also in terms of reviewers. And mm-hmm. then this is something else that has like occurred to me too late is that I think blurbs, um, you know, for all of the, the grousing that writers do about them, because it's a pain in the ass to give them and it's a pain in the ass to go ask for them and to grovel around and whatever. But if you get good blurbs or you get, you know, especially from notable authors or whatever, and somebody supports your work publicly that way. Yeah. Um, and then, and especially if it's on the galley and it goes mm-hmm. out and, and, you know, people are reviewing, you know, if you have good blurbs like that, I think that people are less inclined to, uh, you know, really pan a book that, uh, you know, maybe not every time, but a lot of the time. Yeah, maybe not every time. <laughs> right, but you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like a defense. It's like, okay, well, if uh, Salman Rushdie thinks this is a good book and you think it's not, like, who the hell are you? Do you know what I'm saying? Right. I don't know. I just, I feel like that's almost what it's like. like. Good blurbs almost serve as armor for a book and a good imprint and like the Knopf name on the spine. You know, when you send it out into battle to be reviewed, that's where it really matters. And right. I feel like maybe I discovered that. Um, like 10 years into my career. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, when you think about it also, I mean, the literary landscape is just so crowded. I mean, there are so many books being published. So things like, you know, publisher imprints and blurbs are also ways in which people make choices um, as to what to read because there's just a lot of books out there jostling for attention. So that's part of it too, is to try to find a way to tell the story of your book and to say, you know, this matters, you might like this, this is um, important or worthy of attention, especially for fiction, which is, you know, an ever diminishing role in um, especially media um, landscape. Yeah. It's it's like, they're like filters and uh, yeah. So, okay. So just, you know, before I let you go, uh, you know, you've got, you're obviously several books into your career now. You've had some great publishing success. Um, you know, obviously it's tough, even with this success, even with a Knopf publisher, even with all the stuff that's happened for you to make a living as a writer of fiction is extremely difficult. 
where, like, how do you feel about things now? Do you know what I'm saying? Having achieved all of this. And then how do you look to the future and try to plan things or do you try to plan things? Yeah. Well, um, I go back and forth on it. I mean, there are some times when I, I do get really concerned about things like readership, um, and the role that the novel or the short story plays in the relation to a, a culture that's just really saturated with other, you know, forms forms of art. Um, and that's, that can often be worrisome to me, but uh, at other times, I, it's especially when I read, you know, other people's work that is beautiful or intensely moving to me. And I just, I mean, that's really the well that I always go back to, you know, and I think, well, maybe it doesn't necessarily matter that we're not this huge mainstream medium in the culture. Maybe a small but dedicated readership, you know, to our art, you know, is wonderful and the place that that we're going to be. And and if we have these books that exist that are incredibly great books and a few people are reading them and caring about them, then, you know, maybe that's okay. I mean, I just read just... For example, um, Jess Walter's book, Beautiful Ruins, which yeah. is just an incredibly good book. And I, I read a book like that, and I'm so heartened by how beautiful it is and how good it is. So whenever I um, sort of get down on what's going to happen with me and my future, I read other books, and I feel really, really optimistic. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. Uh, it's not always easy, as sad as it might sound. And part of this is just uh, laziness or access or, you know, finding the time to kind of go out and hunt one down. But it's not always easy for me to have a book on hand that I'm really into. Sometimes right. I'll, I'll pick them up and I'll, you know, but when, when you get a, a book that really gets its hooks into you, uh, it improves my mood toward writing and makes me feel yeah. inspired, which is, you know, I think natural. But it just makes me such a, a much more interesting person generally. My mind is so much more alive. And it's another one of those like late epiphanies for me or one of those epiphanies that for some reason I seem to keep needing to have. But right. it's all about the reading. It's like yeah. it, reading has to be um, like, like – and, and not just reading as like a duty but reading as a passion and like finding something that you're really, really into is an essential part of the job. And, and I think that – if I don't have something that I'm really into reading, then I should almost like, you know, elbow or carve out some time in my day and just like not stop searching until I find it. So I can make sure I always have a book that I'm really into. <laughs> you know, like, Yeah, no, I absolutely think so. And I, uh, you know, it's what originally I think started all of us onto the path of being writers is, is the joy of it, the losing yourself in the world of a book, the joy of language, you know, and the way that it falls on your ear when you're, when you're reading it. And, you know, that, that is truly enduring, you know, that is forever. And um, it's always there for you, no matter how often you maybe drift away from it in your life. And, you know, we all have periods when we read less or we're down, but you come back to it and, and books are always there. And it's just a tremendous um, comfort to me. Well, I'll tell you, it's been so great to talk with you. And uh, I congratulate you on all this, uh, all this, you know, both publications from earlier this summer and, and just, uh, you know, your success in general. And uh, I wish you all the best, uh, you know, on future efforts. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, there you go. That's the program. That is Alex Olin. Go get her books. Get the story collection, Signs and Wonders. It is available now from Vintage. And then get inside the novel. It's available from Knopf. You can find Alex on the web at alexolean.com. She's on Twitter at alexolean. And she's also on the Facebook. This program has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, don't forget, you can subscribe for free at iTunes. So if you haven't done that yet, go ahead and do that. The program is also available free of charge at Stitcher. 
Uh, it has a Twitter feed, at Other People Pod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy, if you want to read my tweets from the Holy Land. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, for whatever reason, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks as well to everybody for all the kind words regarding episode 100, which just happened a few days ago. I got a lot of nice emails and tweets and so on. Really great responses to the George Saunders interview. I appreciate that. Please remember that W.H. Auden was once arrested for urinating in a public park in Barcelona and that George Bernard Shaw died at age 94 due to complications suffered from breaking a hip. That is all I've got for you folks. Thanks for listening. Please note that the show will continue on its regular schedule in the days to come. Nothing changes. Even though I'm going to be out of town in Israel, I'm going to keep it going. You're going to get your podcasts right on schedule. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to worry about. Don't freak out. Don't freak out.